0: Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now, here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross, and Dr. Danielle Tolman.
1: Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Danielle Tolman, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, also a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist. And today, we are joined by Dr. Alexandra Sellers, who is an audiologist, and we have Abby, I have to say, I'm a little embarrassed (laughs) that we are a couple of years into this podcast now. And I believe that Alex is our first audiologist that we are having on. We talk all the time about how important audiology is and audiologists are to our multidisciplinary approach to the patient. So... We are here today to talk to Alex about what that it looks like, how audiologists uh, function within working with vestibular patients, and you know how we can be better partners to each other. You know, working with patients. So, welcome. Would you mind giving our listeners and viewers a little bit more background information on yourself?
0: Yes, and I will have to say that was a great introduction. I feel so honored to be the first audiologist to be on Talk Dizzy to me. Um, so. As you said, Danny, uh, I'm Dr. Alexander Sellers. I'm an audiologist that focuses in primarily vestibular diagnostics and management. I work at Cleveland Clinic in South Florida, which is a multidisciplinary hospital. Um, I received my undergraduate degree in communication sciences and disorders from Appalachian State up in North Carolina, go NEARS. Uh, And then I received my audiology degree from East Tennessee State University. So primarily what I do here is um, I run our busy growing vestibular clinic and facilitate management options for patients who have vestibular imbalance concerns and try to collaborate with other specialties to see how we can get them going to be the best they can be.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that I really loved about you, Dr. Sellers, was you reached out to me, we connected and we were like, Oh my gosh, another vestibuloholic. Let's have her on the show.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was so nice talking that day.
2: So here we are several months later. I want you to tell us a little bit about, for our audience, maybe our patients are wondering, why do we have an audiologist on the show when we talk more about vestibular rehab and vestibular dysfunction? Mm -hmm. Tell us about an audiologist's role in the multidisciplinary approach for vestibular disorders. So
0: generally speaking, I mean, when you think of the ear, you have the balance portion and the hearing portion. Sometimes those two are related, sometimes they are not. Um, You can absolutely go directly to a physical therapist if you are having issues with dizziness or imbalance you do not have to see an audiologist for formal diagnostic testing but that is what we do is we're able to perform um in-depth testing to see do patients have any kind of measurable vestibular damage we're trying to see do both ears sense movements differently is one better than the other similar to how you would do a hearing test to see is there anything concerning anything that could be contributing to their symptoms. And then we'll go even deeper to try to find just where um, the damage is and how far along the patient may be in that process. If this is new, if they have compensated for what's causing their symptoms and then um, coordinate and facilitate to see, okay, if we're getting... uh, damage on these tests, is that related to their current symptoms or is this not vestibular and they may need to be sent elsewhere? Um, so definitely utilize our resources all the time. <laughs> What's so nice is that you guys
1: quantify what is going on with the patient. You know, as a physical therapist, yes, people can come in off the street and we can do a bedside evaluation and even use infrared goggles to assess what we're looking at. Uh-huh. But basically, those tests don't quantify the difference in function of the inner ears or the degree of nystagmus um, and how fast it's moving during certain tests so it is absolutely amazing i love it when a patient comes walking in through the door and they have the nice packet <laughs> <and herself>. that- <laughs> yes. oh my gosh it's beautiful to look at and it helps paint a, such a beautiful picture of what's going on Because some tests that you guys do also look at um, dysfunction at different frequencies within the vestibular mm-hmm. system that you can't necessarily look at at a bedside with goggles so I think that is imperative when patients ask, well, why do I need to go see the audiologist? Mm-hmm. I have a long
0: list, so, uh, you know, just <laughs> <they> need to <laughs> just go have the scroll out and <laughs> start yeah. going through the list.
1: Yes. So how, so how do audiologists or yourself, how do you coordinate care with providers and that multidisciplinary approach, right? Because I think we've all recognized now that it's very rare that one single person is responsible for all of the care for these types of
0: patients right um so being at the hospital that i'm at now it is so nice to have this is assuming the patient has been seen at cleveland clinic or at least we have some other records but it's so nice to be able to look through notes of other providers be able to see who referred what imaging they've had done being able to see their medications list it takes a lot of the unknown and the guesswork out it also makes it a lot easier i think for referring providers and for patients too um, as far as coordinating care i mean definitely our biggest referral sources are ent i work in an ent department but interestingly enough our lab is located in the neurology department so just by close physical location you know i have just as close you know just as close relationships with the neurologists as i do with the ent so that definitely makes things a lot easier and it's nicer. I think also just building that trust with those people and they can kind of put a face to a name instead of just blindly ordering a vestibular test or a BPPV evaluation. Um, I also really try to be in communication with whoever referred the patient. So just again, building relationships with every provider saying, okay, this is what I recommend, or having my progress notes with my test results and my recommendations be as user-friendly as possible, that a primary care doctor could read it and the patient could read it, and they could both take away the same message. I think that's really important. Um, So I'm always taking my notes, routing it directly to them, sending them a private message saying, hey, you know, I can't order physical therapy, but I think that this could be really beneficial or this patient hasn't had imaging, maybe we need to send them for that. And I think as you develop relationships with other providers, they feel more confident in what you're recommending and they can trust that process. So it definitely makes things a lot easier that way.
2: I love that you're also, close in terms of physical location, but also, you know, under the same roof in terms of being able to communicate via the same EMR system and pulling up each other's notes. (laughs) I do have to say, I miss those days. That was a very good perk to working at a multidisciplinary clinic. I felt very lucky. That is nice. Now, we had mentioned earlier in the show that, you know, you don't need to see an audiologist to go to vestibular rehab. You don't even necessarily need all the testing done to be able to see, be seen or benefit from vestibular rehab. So Mm -hmm. let's say we as vestibular therapists are seeing a patient. When do we know or what clues us into wanting to refer someone to you? What are we looking for? Or maybe is this patient not progressing? Are we trying to figure out, is it vestibular at all? Sure. No, I think that's a great question. And, you know,
0: Kind of how I was mentioning earlier, as you can divide audiology between hearing and balance. So, whether you're a physical therapist seeing a patient for general conditioning or you know overall just balance assessment, falls risk prevention, the obvious ones would be hearing loss if they're reporting tinnitus, um, any concerns with communication, ear fullness. Whether you're treating that them for that or not, I think. Um, it's appropriate to look at it in two ways of, is what I'm treating them for related to the symptoms that they're reporting? Is the tinnitus and the dizziness, are those two going hand in hand? Is one exacerbating the other? Or do I feel like maybe this patient is 80 and, every time I'm talking with them, they're really not understanding what I'm saying. And I feel like this could be impacting their safety or, you know, research is coming out about that sixth sense, the spatial awareness and, you know, how that may be impacting. So those would generally be the things that I would um, refer to an audiologist for. um, I'll say that I ever since I started working a little bit closer with
1: audiologists, I have recognized how much I talk about hearing <laughs> and going back to an audiologist with my patients. Um, I did a 10-week clinical with Jeff Walter up at the multidisciplinary clinic that he's in in Geisinger up in Pennsylvania. And I know other um, facilities like this exist, like Cleveland Clinic and also up at MUSC with Dr. Habib Um, But having everything in one place kind of opened my eyes up to like when we did our bedside evaluation, if something was a little bit off or didn't seem like it was lining up, we could send them right across the hall to audiology and get a hearing test and a them and look at that right away to see if there was anything going on. But, you know, aside from being able to like, say like something's a little bit off, you should go across the hall. Yeah. When I moved into a clinic and I was working more with just an older population that was imbalanced and you know they, or they've had vestibular disorders. We would have so many conversations about the importance of hearing for spatial awareness. Right? Yeah. So if they've got a faulty vestibular system and and you know peripheral neuropathy, they need all of the, the um, balance systems that they can have in order to keep them vertical. So there was a really cool YouTube video that I liked where they have a they have a gentleman standing on a moving platform with his hearing aids on and his hearing aids off, and you look at them side by side and notice the big difference. And all of a sudden patients like, oh, oh, that <laughs> makes sense. And then I also have to have the conversation with them where they come in, they're like, Oh, they recommended hearing aids, but I'm not old enough for that, and I don't need them because I can hear fine. And I think my my catchphrase with them is, "How do you know what you can't hear if you can't hear it? Like you don't know." And so many times,
0: missing. No,
1: like so. There's so many times where it's it is vestibular related, or it's just more general. You know, getting older. You know, imbalance issue related. Where I've actually told patients, you need to go back. If they your doctor recommended you go see your audiologist, go and see your audiologist especially yes. too, like Abby, if you have patients um, that you have like suspected meniers, you know, it's we We might have an idea based on the history, but really the diagnosis comes with time and with testing. Yes. And if they're not going in and, and capturing their hearing along a period of time, it's going to take longer for them to get their diagnosis. So
0: well, there's, I some- argue, sorry, um, you know, I would argue that having that hearing test is probably Mm -hmm. more important than vestibular testing anyways, if Mm -hmm. if we're talking about Meniere's disease um, or monitoring the fluctuations during that process. If, you know, hey, you're mentioning to me that you're feeling, you're having a flare up, you should probably go to your audiologist and get the hearing tested to see where you're at, um, which is important.
1: Yeah, very important. I mean, that diagnosis is by exclusion. Um, But if they can get the test to show that this is following the traditional, uh, what they expect for hearing loss for Meniere's patients, then you're going to get your diagnosis a little bit quicker and hopefully get your help quicker.
0: Yeah. I also, you know, I, you know, I touched on the hearing part, but I think also in terms of audiology for vestibular evaluations, referring to an audiologist, if either if they haven't had testing done and you feel like, "Mm, I'm not quite convinced that this either is or isn't vestibular. Um, having that either rule in or rule out, having the hard evidence to prove it. Um, If you have a tricky BPPV patient, depending on where you're at as a physical therapist, if you do have video goggles or not, I know some places do, um, but others don't. So you're doing it more bedside, which is great until you've seen them multiple times and they're really not making any progress. Um, We'll also see from our physical therapist here saying okay i've been treating them for six weeks and they're still having these complaints can we maybe do some retesting to see where they're at you know for an acute neuritis and see where they're at in that compensation process with your VHID or your rotary chair gain, which is pretty cool it's fun for me to see
2: yeah. So we're talking about the testing that you do. Let's give our audience a little bit better idea on what that testing includes. So can we describe some of the tests, especially the vestibular component of testing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So aside from an audiogram or hearing test, um, here we're a fully operational vestibular clinic. So we tend to triage patients patients based off of what their complaints are. Um, but our standard battery would include your VNG, which is spontaneous gaze holding, your ocular motor testing, positional testing, um, BPPV treatment if indicated. Um, I have heard of some practices where the audiologist does not treat for BPPV and they will send to PT stop what the clinical practice guidelines recommend thank you
1: i wanted to ask you about that because i cannot tell you how many times <laughs> i have a patient come in with me and the results say they have everything was normal except for like right posterior canal BPBV canal ethiasis. and and it, it's about a month since they had the testing oh with me and I, I i remember the first time i came out of a, a school and i was working my first job and i this happened to me that came across and this poor gentleman in his 80 like late 80s falling bilateral posterior canal beep and BV straightforward it had been two months since testing and when oh, I saw wow, him gosh. and I called up the clinic I said why didn't anybody do maneuvers and I said that should, well you no know, it's we didn't we just don't do that here we don't feel like we can build properly for our time I yes. think was what they said and I was just like two minutes two minutes gonna save this man two months worth of falls and oh so yes. it's, I'm happy to hear it's in the clinical practice guidelines yes.
0: yes.
2: I wonder if this is totally like me going down a rabbit hole, but I wonder if a situation where a clinic does not treat, is that negligence? I mean, could that be a lawsuit? Let's say that patient falls and, you know, ends up in the hospital. I wonder because if yeah, some practice so guidelines say you should treat it when you see it, why aren't some clinics doing that?
0: Right. Well, and whether you get paid to do something or not, also thinking of all the bedside tests that we do in any profession that are not billed for, um, I, I don't know. For me, I feel like it's a morality thing. If I sent my mother or if I myself went to a doctor and they're like, well, you know, they're looking at your eyes and you're spinning. They're saying, well, we do know it's causing it. We know how to treat it, but we're not going to get that $50. So we're just going to refer you. Uh, it may go away, but yeah, you're going to have to see somebody else. I mean, that's terrible. I think that's just poor patient care.
2: Where's the do no harm in that? Because to me, I know. that's harm.
0: <laughs> Why don't you sign an
2: oath? <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I I'm sure there is an argument to this. So anybody listening, if you disagree with us, please let us know. We'd love to discuss it and, and talk it out. But you know, I think part of it to blame is also just insurance companies and the decreasing rates of reimbursement and how people are really struggling to try to keep up and provide quality care for patients. So that is my uh, tipping my toe into the other side of the argument, even though I'm wholly on the other side of you should treat it if you see it, treat it.
0: Well, I can also pose another good argument, which when I started here and then I'm going to go down a rabbit hole too, but (laughs) I can't help, but not to, I'm passionate about this. When I started working at Cleveland Clinic and this, I think is pretty common in a lot of places. I don't think it's specific here, but the only types of appointments that audiologists had were full vestibular test batteries. There was no follow-up. There was, you do the test, you send it back to the referring provider, whoever that may be, and you wash your hands and that's it. Um, But when I started working here, and this came from um, where I did my fellowship or residency, whatever you may call it, where they had BPPV appointments where it's just one hour, the wait time is way less. You unclog the ENT schedule so they can fill their schedule with not standard posterior canal BPPV. They can schedule it with patients that need surgery or medical patients. And so While you may lose a little bit by having an audiologist treat in that sense, you may get little diagnostic reimbursement. You could be, if we're talking about money, Mm -hmm. um, if that's a concern, which it is, um, you're making that money on the back end with ENT. So that's what I'm doing with it.
1: When I did my, my clinical, when I was finishing up grad school, the when I worked with Jeff, um, with him as my clinical instructor, mm-hmm. they had the same thing. So he actually developed a decision tree that the front desk would have, and it had otol- they had otolaryngology, him as a physical therapist with his own office, and audiology all in the same center. Okay, so would call, cool. they would the the front desk would kind of. Um, use the de- decision tree to kind of triage and kind of get a feel for this might be a Jeff patient, this might be the doctor patient, this might be audiology. If anything was questionable, they would, um, Jeff himself would triage the patient. So cool. essentially what it would do, it was free up the otolaryngologist's uh, appointments in order to get Actual patients in there that are going to be surgical candidates or people that needed to see the ENT yes. versus somebody who just needed a quick BV maneuver. Mm-hmm. And even in that sense, say they got um, a full bedside evaluation by Jeff. If he felt like there was something different going on there, he had the autonomy to be able to get those extra tests and then put that patient in front of the otolaryngologist with the entire story in hand to then yes. make better clinical decision uh, decisions as far as their care. So. You know, these types of clinics, thank goodness, have people like you that are helping to facilitate that type of approach, because I think that's helping cutting down on diagnostic times, getting patients better, faster. And it's going to cut down on the amount of over-testing and other types of medical care they'll need while they're going through all of that. Yeah,
0: I agree. Well, and um, recently, I think Devin McCaslin up at Mayo, they have, this has been at all of, you know, at AVS, they were presenting on this of how can we triage these patients better? How can we reduce the amount of appointments that they have to go to, the frustration, the waste of time, kind of on both ends and respect to get patients better, faster.
1: Now, how did you, if you don't mind me asking, how did you get into be loving the vestibular system? Because, you know, I think I'd love to hear your origin story of how you kind of scooted into this
0: uh, specialty. <laughs> Yeah, I think, Abby, I feel like you and I might have talked about this briefly when we were on the phone. Um, So I originally was a psychology major. Um, I generally have always been interested in how people work. Um, Some would say I'm an over counselor. That's probably where that psychology comes in. Um, But I was horrible at psychology. And it got to the point where I was having to determine okay, what is my major going to be? I have to declare. And I freaked out. It's like, this is not what I can do for the rest of my life. This is terrible. And um, so thank you to all the psychologists out there, but I was terrible at it. And so I was looking at, you know, the different options for majors and came across communication sciences and disorders. It starts with a C. It was at the top of the list. It didn't take that long to find. And clicked it, looked at the different classes. There was a little bit of physics, neuroanatomy, speech, audiology. Um, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. It's not medical enough to where I'd have to go to medical school. Um, but it's doing something where I'm helping people, which ultimately I think was where my calling was. And so when I started those courses, took some intro audiology, intro speech, And the audiology course, that professor, he hated vestibular. So there was not a lot that he really taught on that. But he was like, yeah, so the ears, they do have these sensors that detect, you know, where you're moving. And, you know, these people can get dizzy if that system's not working. And that was pretty much it. I was like, dizziness, that's kind of weird. It kind of, it reminded me of when I was in middle school and I got really dizzy. I had acute vertigo in the middle of social studies class in eighth grade. Wow. And going on, I can remember it. I can take myself back to that exact moment. I remember what row I was sitting in, what desk. I remember getting up because I felt weird to go to the bathroom. I had to sign out, get a hall pass, walk down the hall. And I just felt like gravity was pushing me down. And it eventually, it was the worst thing ever. I was laying on the bathroom floor and my middle school trailer. It was disgusting. Uh, And I felt, I just remember feeling so anxious and dizzy for probably like a month, like a solid month and went to an ENT, um, had hearing loss in my left ear. They said I had Meniere's disease. We know how that conversation goes. Um, Did not have Meniere's disease. Fun fact, don't have that. Um, And it eventually just went away, but it created (laughs) an extreme amount of anxiety with me going back to school and never figured out why they wanted to um, do a norectomy is what they told my mom yes yeah my mom was like uh no like that just maybe we'll get a second opinion and then it eventually got better and i was fine i was active i played soccer and so when i had that class i was like i think that i might have figured out what happened to me and it just piqued my interest, and I just went for it. I eventually did find out what happened when I was in grad school. I had a labyrinthitis, so I have a, I have a unilateral weakness, my, left side. my <laughs> last time. I have hearing loss, too, actually. But I think a lot of that recovered.
2: They put me on some steroids, so that's my... Would opinion. you just... just uh, we do we, need to get back to the I, vestibular chest. <laughs> <night, laughs> but I have another question aside talking. from that. Yeah. When you had the onset of vertigo and you had labyrinthitis, were you... Mm-hmm experiencing any viral infection that you know of? Do you know if there was anything that brought it on for you?
0: No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, again, I was 14, just about to go into high school. Um, But no, not that I remember. I don't remember being sick. I don't remember having a flu or anything going on at the time. It was totally spontaneous.
2: Also another aside about that story because I can't tell you how many patients say I was diagnosed with labyrinthitis and I'm like have you had any hearing issues? And they'll be like no, my hearing's fine. <laughs> That's I not labyrinthitis. Couple, like I just
0: had a couple episodes of dizziness when I lay down in bed. <laughs>
2: But anyway, back to wow. testing. I love that story. I, especially in this community, I feel like people have the best stories and how they get into this specialty, and mm-hmm. it makes our community great. Honestly, we all have our mm-hmm. own little thing. I've had vertigo. I think Danny, at least, you've had something, right?
1: I've had self-induced <laughs> vertigo. I've done ice too many ice water calorics for fun. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry.
2: <laughs> for fun, really. Mm, Yeah. Thank
1: Thank you you for volunteering, (laughs) but at least, I mean, what you went through puts you in a very unique position. I can't tell you, and Abby, we see this sometimes on our social media where people get very passionate and they go, how dare you talk about something that you can't understand? And it's like, we we try, we try. And a lot of people actually do. And I think I wrote back to one person at one point is like, we, we do understand we've put ourselves in those shoes and some people have actually had, you know, vestibular issues and that's why they are helping today. So, you know, we, we try to understand the patient. We listen to our patients. We try to be very, very compassionate, um, whether or not you've had vertigo. I mean, everybody at some point, if they've uh, ever uh, overindulged in any sort of alcoholic beverage. None
2: of us. None of us. I've never had that happen. I
1: mean, yeah. I mean, anybody else but us, you know, they might understand. Uh, so at one point or another, a lot of people have experienced it and just haven't realized.
0: Yeah, well, it definitely, unfortunately, allows me to empathize a lot better. (laughs) They say, oh, you just, you don't get it. This is, this is how it was. I'm like, well, yeah, I kind of (laughs) do. It sucks. Um, But you're on the other side of it,
1: which is a great thing to be able to tell them is that, you know, this happened to you and you've been through it. But, you know, on the other end of it, things worked out okay. Yes. Well, so,
2: shall we revert yeah. back from that long <laughs> tangent I took us on? I told you we'd go down these these rabbit holes
0: of conversation. That's what makes it interesting. Um, yes. So to go back to that. Um, so I treat, yes, for BPPV and follow up to make sure it resolves. Finish the testing if necessary. Clinical practice guidelines. Um, calorics air is what we have here. You can also do that with water, depending on where you are at. Um, either... Um, monothermal, bithermal, either you know, warm air or cold air. Uh, rotational chair testing, with we do visual fixation here, similar to what you would look for with fixation on calorics, goes through the same pathway. VHIT, um, we try to do all canals, but uh, a lot of patients that we see have some neck restrictions, so we at least get laterals for people, um, which is going to say the most important, but that's most commonly seen. Uh, we do VIMPs, not so much ocular VIMPs with COVID, just with masks and things. We just stick to C-VIMPs um, right now if they have the neck mobility. Um, we do some other kind of special testing as needed. We do um, skull vibration, and that's one of those screeners that you guys could do actually, it's just that little Oh, yeah. Dollar piece. Yeah. Okay. That one's fun. um And then any kind of suspected third window pathologies, will do sound or pressure induced to see if we see any nystagmus or if it generates symptoms. Uh, we do have a Burtek, but just due to space, it is in the physical therapy department. So, uh, from what I have heard from them, they primarily use that more for treatment. um But just because you guys have your own diagnostic things, so and you don't need a fancy Vertex to do that, um, but they do use that as well. Is that the
1: um, the Vertex CDP that has like the big dome, and they yes. can do the um,
0: CDP and the the um, like ER kind of stuff? And okay. yeah, so they sensory re- reweighting in a more formal way, if you will. Um, I'm trying to come up with a concussion protocol because we do have an NFL program here, which is cool. They do um, hearing tests. So why wouldn't you have a concussion protocol for those patients, at least just in case? So that's a little project of mine that I'm working on.
2: Very cool. So there is a lot of overlap between what an audiologist does and what you might experience in a vestibular evaluation. But that extra piece is the quantification. Now, my one thing about quantification, sometimes we'll have those patients that are like, they told me I had such and such percentage weakness in this ear, but they're totally fine. They have no symptoms or vice versa. You know, they told me everything was normal, but I'm so symptomatic. So how do you handle those types of patients when, you know, they're symptomatic and it shows nothing or vice versa? Yes, uh, that's,
0: I think that happens every single day. Um, (laughs) So... The nice thing, and I think Danny was mentioning, that we test the vestibular system across frequencies. We have our, just like you wouldn't test only the high frequencies for hearing loss, why would you only test one frequency for your ears? It just doesn't make any sense.
1: I love that analogy. That's a really great analogy.
0: Yeah. So you have your low frequencies, which this is essentially how I explain it to patients. I'm like, we're going to see how they operate on really slow speeds to really fast speeds to see are both ears working or is one not working as well as the other. So you have your slower speeds, which is your calorics. That'll look at your chronic damage or difference between ears. And then you move up to your rotary chair, which now you're getting into more functional movements that you would make in everyday life also shows compensation over time. So the patient may have had dizziness four months ago. You see that damage on your calorics, but it's nice to have the other tests to say, well, that's there, but it sounds like you're improving as you should. These tests show that. So your rotary chair can show if it's acute versus an old injury. And then you get up to your V hit, which is, you know, your vestibular reflex was working five to 10 times faster, really than any voluntary movement they can make. So if they're saying, oh, well every time I turn my head, I just, I get so dizzy. Well, well, this looks pretty good actually. Um, So maybe that symptom might not be coming from the ears or, you know, where could that be coming from? Or actually, yes, this test does show that every time we turn your head to the right, I just call them spaghetti saccades because it looks like spaghetti. It's just, they're all over the place. Your brain really has not gone through that compensation process to learn how to make those movements differently. So um, I think having that helps, but also saying, okay, well, if you're symptomatic and I'm getting normal test results, do I still think it's vestibular or not? What are the things that could be vestibular that have normal test results? BPPV being the most common or you're symptomatic but everything is normal maybe we need to rethink our diagnosis could it be migraine related could it be early stages of Meniere's? could it be anxiety could it be you know a multitude of other things
1: that's a really good point and even you know some people might have had a chronic vestibular issue and now they're just their sensory systems are just re-weighted, right? Maybe they're too heavily visually dependent. And that's why when they go out in big open spaces or they have things moving in their peripheral vision, it makes them feel symptomatic. So you're, you're absolutely right. I love the fact that you can use tests to rule things in, rule things out, look at everything across that broad spectrum. Um, I think that's extremely useful for physical therapists, for your, like you said, your primary care, the patient to know, I I love that you're able to kind of put that on paper for them and show them, yes, like what you're feeling is real and I can see it here on these tests. And this makes a lot more sense. It validates, um, what a patient's been feeling and struggling with trying to explain to people, which is fantastic.
0: Well, I think also, too, you know, if we're talking about quantification, just taking calorics, for example, because that's the easiest one to quantify, you know, if a patient comes and it sounds, let's say, it sounds like they had a neuritis and they're coming out with a 35% weakness in one ear, we can say that pretty mild, but they're coming to you and that is not how they're describing their symptoms. Mm. They're wildly bothered by it. So I think having... Those two, almost like a cross-check measure, um, could prompt you to question further of, do we think this could turn into 3PD? Mm. Are they having anxiety that's exacerbating it? What, you know, instead of just saying, well, it's fine, you really should be fine. So I don't really know what's going on. And, you know, kind of push them along. I think that can help manage it a little bit easier. You could refer them back to primary care neurology for you know, any kind of medical intervention to supplement what you're, what you're doing with PT. I think that would be very helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I love that our two fields can independently exist, but also intertwine so much. I think it's, It's uh, something that I want to use more honestly. We are mostly telehealth, so we don't have the perk of the multidisciplinary clinic where we can send the patient across the hall. But in those patients where I'm not certain that I really know what the diagnosis is and will that impact my treatment, sometimes it could. The course of intervention that I want to follow, I think it's really nice to have all the quantification and, and testing performed by audiology just to see it's fun to, like you said, you know, cross-check each other too. Okay. Yes. Does this actually make sense? If this yes. is what you guys are showing, is this presentation matching that or is there something I'm missing? Absolutely. So really, really, really cool stuff. Um, let me ask you if a patient, so we as vestibular therapists have <laughs> direct access, especially here in Florida and New York where I treat Texas as well. Um, can they, have direct access to you or do they need a referral to you? Well, let's
0: see how I can politically, (laughs) how I can answer this correctly. Um, All the audiologists listening will know how much of a fight this is. Uh, It does depend on insurance. I think ultimately um, being at a hospital, you can't just, you can't charge out of pocket unless the patient doesn't have insurance or unless the patient signs a waiver um there are a couple insurance plans that don't require a referral but they may require an order so that's different from say going to see a specialist like an ent well i don't need a referral to go see an ent i can just schedule that appointment right you don't need a referral to come see an audiologist but you need an order so we can bill for the diagnostic testing that we're doing so that's where insurance gets a little tricky and then there's the pre-authorization what's covered what's not covered um so it gets a little bit sticky with direct access so the basic answer would be no we do not have direct access <laughs> generally
1: no, I, what
2: is, um, sorry, um,
0: I just uh typically when i tell
1: people that i'd like for them to go get their hearing checked or talk to their audiologist I'll either follow up with their ENT that either referred them or their ENT debuts in the past. And I'll say, this is what we're seeing on the initial evaluation. And then in my assessment, I'll say something along the lines of, maybe recommended that the patient follow up with the ENT for possible audiological testing yeah. um, and try to put it in that way. So I'm not ordering them to get, you know, to send out an order, but I'm at least trying to include
2: them. Strong in the-
0: recommendation.
2: Yes,
1: yes.
0: <laughs>
2: this would be
1: really great. If yeah. my
2: opinion matters, this is what she should do. It doesn't your opinion. So, if I'm understanding correctly, let's say you opened a practice and it was all cash, could a patient come into your doors like that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's There's more the politics of insurance and making sure all your boxes are checked.
0: Yes. Um, to my limited knowledge of that, I. I'm not exactly sure with audiology. I know with like ENT patients, you can't pick and choose who think it's either all cash only um, or, but you can't pick and choose. Okay, well you can pay for cash, but we're going to charge your insurance for this. Pretty sure that's illegal. Um, But I think if it was, look, we're an independent clinic. You can come similar to how um, there are audiologists that are doing VRT, which I'll talk about later, but um, which is fine, but it does get sticky with billing and how you're able to charge out of pocket or bill for things like that.
1: Now, what about getting into VRT? So, are there audiologists out there that are doing,
0: um, you know, VRT
1: treatments with patients?
0: Yes, uh, I am not one of them. I do not feel comfortable with that, have had no training in that. Um, But I have had friends that are audiologists, I know of other clinics that do that and they typically will charge out of pocket for it or they won't charge for that, but they're charging for, well, before every, every therapy or treatment, we're gonna do optokinetic testing or we're gonna do a rotary chair every time we see them. So they can bill for that, but they're not necessarily billing specifically for the therapy itself, which that's not really something I would personally want to get in as a provider because I wouldn't want that to come back and haunt me. But I think with virtual reality um, being on the rise, audiologists having a Virtec or you very easily could do those things. And I think there are some you know, you could take courses online to be trained in that, to feel comfortable doing it. That's just not something I personally would want to do, but it's out there.
1: Sounds like it starts to get to be a little bit of a slippery slope, gray yeah. area. kind of thing. I, I mean, I think uh, in the role of vestibular rehab, that's been primarily dominated by physical therapists, because we have the billing codes, we have the mm-hmm. time we'll in to be able to do so.
0: Um, well, we have so much more knowledge too. I mean, sure, I could identify a very straightforward 40-year-old that has a neuritis, but then you get into a 75 year old that has other orthopedic issues, multifactorial issues. I don't want to touch that patient. (laughs) I do not feel comfortable with that. That's for you guys. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're
1: absolutely right. But you know, I think that. Um, I, 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 still think that there should be some recourse for allowing audiologists to bill for repositioning maneuvers. Um, yes. you know, if that's something that you're, um, in the practice guidelines to diagnose and to quantify and to look at that should be something especially cause it's easily fixed within a couple of minutes, hopefully, you know, barring it's a difficult yeah. case. That's I feel true. like, uh, that should be, there should be something there that allows for uh, reimbursement for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's important in our multidisciplinary approach that every clinician involved kind of stays in their lane. It's not that you don't dip your toes sometimes another. I mean, sometimes we're dipping our toes in psychotherapy, trying to get patients to better manage their anxiety that's associated with um, dizziness and vertigo, but it's not that we're saying we're your psychotherapist and right. this is what we're going to do. I think the nice thing about vestibular rehab and the reason why rehab stays in vestibular rehab with physical therapists is, or sometimes occupational therapists too, but mm-hmm. is that we have the ability to see patients more regularly. Yes. And I think that's so important in vestibular rehab so that the program can just be adjusted and you're getting the feedback from the patient, not once a month or every two months or at your six month follow-up, but- it's yeah. consistent. Absolutely. Um, so with that being said, there is definitely something that is in your lane and not in our lane, and that is tinnitus. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how many times you have patients reach out to us. That is their only symptom, and they're like, what can I do about this? So take us down that path.
0: Okay, well, that's a loaded question. What can we do about tinnitus? Um, I would say that You know, it is very different in the setting of a physical therapist hearing these concerns versus an audiologist. Um, So, you know, my blanket statement would be validation, just validating them and validating their experience and validating, yes, you are hearing something that is very real to you. And just because everybody else cannot hear it around you does not mean it's there, uh, or does not mean it's not there. I think that if you are seeing a patient for treatment aside from tinnitus, um, then I think the first thing that you would want to know well is their tinnitus related to what I'm treating them for, or is it not? Um, Either way, have you had a hearing test? Have you been to an audiologist? Do you have hearing loss? Um, Referring them to audiology would be your biggest thing. Um, Has there any been been any formal testing done? Is there any management that has already been done or that you're trying? Um, you know, as far as doing any testing, you guys don't do that. So you do have to kind of hand that one off. But I think it would be good to have some tools in your back pocket to know, okay, what are some basic tinnitus kind of counseling tools to have? So you don't feel like you're being the person like, well, there's something that we can do. You just you know, you just kind of have to live with it. And um, yeah, that's kind of normal. A lot of people have it. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's not what you want to feel stuck with. Um, so, you know, I'm all about just empowering the patient of, look, get your hearing tested. In the meantime, these are some things that you can do. We can start with where are the places that it bothers you the most? Is it when you're laying down to go to sleep at night? Is it keeping you up? Do you sleep with a fan? Do you sleep with some kind of noise generator? Um, they have on-ear maskers that can be with, you know, that look like hearing aids. Whether it's a hearing aid or not, um, you know, as an audiologist, our biggest thing typically that we do first is do we do a hearing test to see is there untreated hearing loss? Because about half the time, patients with untreated hearing loss who have tinnitus do a lot better just because you're hearing those environmental sounds that you're not otherwise hearing. So that sound in your head is amplified. Um, I think a good recommendation is there are a lot of apps out there um, like Resound, which is a hearing aid company. They have their, I think it's called a Resound Relief app where you can tailor and like create almost like your own soundscapes. And um, it doesn't have to be white noise or pink noise. You could do a babbling brook with some birds in the background or whatever you wanted to listen to um, to tailor it to what suits you best. Um, Spotify has playlists, Apple Music, YouTube playlists. Um, Remind me and I will send you guys some um, so you can have that. Um, There's also pillows that you can buy that have tinnitus maskers in them. Um, That may be nice if you're sleeping alongside somebody and they don't want to hear that. Um, I don't recommend the TV or radio just because that's more disruptive to your sleep patterns Um, and the flashing lights as well on the TV. It's not good to have. Um, To get a little bit more complicated, this isn't so much what you guys would do. Although, I mean, if we're talking about anxiety, stress... You know, if the patient clearly is saying, well, every time I get dizzy, you know, my tinnitus increases. And if it's obviously not related directly to the tinnitus, but exacerbating factors, anxiety, um, obsessive tendencies. Could this person benefit maybe from therapy or does this person have trauma linked to their tinnitus that every time something happens, they're reminded of it? mindfulness, meditation, that all sounds very intuitive, but I don't think people often stop to give it a try um, or consistently try to do it. The other obvious ones would be, um, you know, does caffeine play a role? Well, every time I drink, you know, I have to have my free shots of espresso at 6.30 in the morning. I think I actually had a patient that said that to me the other day and they're like, and I'm pretty sure that's increasing my tinnitus as soon as I wake up. And I was like, yeah, probably so. Have you tried to cut down to see how it works? And I'm like, well, no, because I just like my three shots of espresso. Okay, well, you know what will happen. Um, you know, stress, alcohol, high blood pressure, all of those things can absolutely play a role. Um, the other thing, go ahead, Jenny. Okay, what,
1: uh, for our, our um, you know patient listeners, what is tinnitus? How is this noise being generated inside their head and not heard anywhere else?
0: Yes, so the very easy explanation, there's a great TED talk on this that I'm gonna send, it's an animation um, from an old professor of mine, Dr. Mark and he is the tinnitus guru, he is amazing. But the way that I like to explain it to patients is you're being sent for a hearing test, typically, um, because tinnitus most often is related to hearing loss or a change within the pathway that goes from your ear to your brain. So when there is a change, whether it is measured as hearing loss or not, your brain compensates for it. And it compensates for a sound that it's no longer getting or it's getting differently. So it turns up its own internal signal somewhere in that pathway generated in the brainstem just to compensate for it. And that is what you're realizing as your new level of silence. So the goal for patients is similar to how if you're sitting in a room and you hear the air conditioning come on and you say oh that's the air conditioning okay and then you go back to what you're doing and then you forget the air conditioning is on until it turns off and they're saying oh air conditioning just (laughs) turned off that is the goal for how we want people to look and uh coexist with their tinnitus is okay i know this isn't anything worrisome I know that this is just a subtle change that has happened and, you know, I'm not going crazy. This is not hurting me in any way. This isn't a sign of anything else that could be going on. We've assessed all the bad things that could be causing it. And it just, it is what it is. Ultimately, that is the worst phrase ever, but it's the best way to explain it, I think. Um, And so while validating them and saying, yes, this is it, but also this is not hurting you. So It is a very real sound.
2: It reminds me of, um, I mean, we've probably all had ringing in our ears at one point or another, and it is very annoying, right? But it reminds me of telling patients who are so hypervigilant to their symptoms, trying to get them to step back a little bit from constantly checking in with themselves and jotting everything down. It's a similar approach to the ringing. You know, you note that it's on and... Hopefully you can, you know, like the air conditioner analogy. I loved that. Hopefully you can cope through it and continue your day and then, Oh, there it goes. And that's it. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like with dizziness when my patients are so in tune to every little thing that they feel, it just perpetuates the symptoms more. Yes. It makes recovery harder and it makes doing activities of daily living more difficult because they're feeling every little thing. And I'm that way. So when I'm, when I'm providing therapy and I'm coaching, I'm like, know.
0: no, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think too, that you guys, and I think, you know, working with patients in the general population, we can identify and there's research to show that there are those kind of personality subtypes that tend to be a little bit more obsessive or neurotic that weight their tinnitus as more bothersome than people that don't have those tendencies. And really in the grand scheme of people that suffer from tinnitus, it's only a small percentage that are actually really, really bothered by it. Um, That's where I think cognitive behavioral therapy, even trying neuromodulation, which is something that usually audiologists will do um, to see, they do a bunch of fancy tests. I won't go into detail because I won't bore you, Um, but how can we use different sounds to modulate the tinnitus or to almost like neutralize it or phase cancel it in a sense? Um, It's expensive and it's usually out of pocket and doesn't always work because if it worked, everybody would do it. But it is something for those people to feel like, okay, there's something that I can try. That's why I think having those things to say to patients, at least giving them something to do, something else to focus on, in a sense, there's a boundary there, uh, can be helpful.
1: Yeah, we talk about that a lot with our listeners and on previous podcasts about you know, sometimes you can't do anything for a patient, but when they walk in and you've been able to sit down, validate what they're feeling, listen to them, and actually feel like they're getting through to somebody that actually takes a big weight off those shoulders because that anxiety and that hyper-awareness really does amplify symptoms. And if we can help that, even in the slightest bit, you're, you're helping somebody, whether or not you put them through exercises or did, you know, repositioning maneuvers on them in some way you can help. And I think that, a lot of our vestibular, um, you know, patient population, a lot of them tend to be that more type A personalities because mm-hmm. those people are so affected by their symptoms. They are seeking help. Yes. I can't tell you how many times we've, uh, you know, on accident found beep and, beep and beep on these like laid back people <laughs> who like <take laughs> a little imbalance, and like, I'll to do, I do positional testing on everybody, you know, <laughs> They're there for balance. I still do, you know, feet be, be tests, And I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally found it. And these people, and their eyes can be rolling out of their head. I'm like, are you dizzy? And they're like, no, I." Or they're just like, yeah, I think I feel a little bit yeah. different. It blurs. I don't know. If you'd stop moving, I can tell you. I'm like, okay. And, like, they, they don't seek help because it doesn't bother them. But I think right. that the patient population that we tend to work very closely with tend to be those type A, hyper aware, you know, flight or fight response, mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of a patient, um, which makes us have to be even more empathetic and patient yes. with, the, with those patients,
0: because it is very scary. Well, and that's absolutely a skill that I have had to learn. Um, but I also am kind of passionate about it too. Given the interest in psychology, I won't say, again, I'm not really good at it. But <laughs> maybe in another life, I will be a therapist. Um, but a lot of patients that do come to me are not vestibular. And so I try to set up my appointments to buffer that and say, this is the goal of the appointment is to see, are your symptoms being caused by this or are they not? Um, it may not tell me what's going on. And so trying to almost set up that expectation to where at the end, it's not like, well, what was the point of that? Of course, everybody says everything is normal and nobody's able to help me by taking the easy way of saying yep not the ear i don't know you're just gonna have to go back to whoever referred you that i can't i just can't do it and so i will take that time because we have the time we have two to three hours with these patients Mm -hmm. to sit and say okay have you been to cardiology have you seen a neurologist have you had imaging um to me it sounds like this let's try this let's get with your primary care and that's where again, making those good connections with your referring providers and with other specialties is so important because it's, you know, I think you're able to better have a conversation with those providers to help the patient. And even with physical therapy, I mean, physical therapists will will message each other all the time and saying, okay, I just saw this patient. They are kind of feeling this way. Is this sort of the general, you know, vibe that you got or they seemed really upset or et cetera. I think just having that open line of communication can be so helpful.
2: There's one thing I wanna clarify before we wrap up our conversation tonight, even though I feel like we could just continue on and on and on. <laughs> I know. Um, so in the physical therapy world, not every physical therapist knows how to treat vestibular dysfunction. How about in the audiology world? What does a patient need to look for if they want or if they're experiencing more vestibular type symptoms and they're getting referred to an audiologist? How do I know that this audiologist is right for my care?
0: That is an excellent question. And that that is something that I also do look for if a patient may come to me once, but they live in naples or they live two or three hours away or they're only here half of the year and they say well who can i go to back home for this or if my bppv comes back and i live in canada who can i go to and so almost always i go to i don't know if you pronounce it Veda or vita are you good do you oh yeah it's vita and i <laughs> i had we had to put a disclaimer out there
1: that um abby and i are both board members and oh. uh, of vita and uh, I- just as of July, I've assumed the presidency of Vita.
0: So you are talking oh to, woo! oh my gosh. Just, uh, I'm <laughs> to to <laughs> um, well, prior to that knowledge, um, I go there all the time. I'm actually not on there. I probably should do that. Um, but that is absolutely a resource that I use because you know that that provider has taken the time to say, hey, I want to be established as such. Mm-hmm. Um, So definitely looking on there looking at the provider directory to see who may be close by Um, looking at either asking the person that is referring you Um, so if it's your primary care hey do you know if
2: this person treats for
0: this Um, or do you know anybody else that does because not all audiologists are created equal in that sense. There are A majority of audiologists do not want to touch dizzy patients. Um, even the audiologists that I work with here, they're like, oh, they're seeing you. I didn't really ask them any questions about their dizziness. I just told them that they'll see you in a week or that they're seeing you. Like, you just won't touch it. Um, well, same for ENTs too, right? There's,
1: you know, ear, ear, ENT goes yeah. and throat. There are so many ENTs that don't want to touch dizzy at all, which makes clinicians like like the three of us you know very beneficial to those types of people for referral sources and yes. i will give a very shameless plug for vita for professional members so all <laughs> you clinicians listening listen up um our provider directory you know we're still we still want it to build it bigger better and we want more than just physical therapists we want multidisciplinary um, uh, professions and clinicians on there so with that being said Very, very soon, we are launching an updated version of our uh, provider directory that will actually include more information about each clinician, about their clinic, asking about their background, the percentage of vestibular patients they treat, what diagnoses they feel comfortable treating, what technology they use in their clinic. So it should be a little bit more clear to those who are going through the directory who might have a little bit more of a specialization in it and who yes. might be more just kind of, you know, getting into it and, and really kind of um, starting to treat that patient population. So we
2: That's are very, awesome. very
1: excited to launch this. So if you guys are not members, um, definitely check it out at vestibular.org. Uh, we'd love to have a bigger pro membership, especially as we move into the realm of um, collaborating more with our medical communities. So yeah. check that out.
2: Very uh, important
0: plug. Thank you. I will. I promise that I will be joining on there. Um, (laughs) I use y'all's resources all the time. Um, I think I give every BPPV patient your BPPV handout because I don't like ours. I love the picture that's on there and I explain it to every single patient. So it's probably about time that I thank you guys back. Um, (laughs) And before I forget, Probably one of the easiest ways to triage if an audiologist does any kind of vestibular testing or even if they can refer you to the correct one. Universities, hospitals, ENT practices, those are usually places that can afford vestibular equipment, less so private practices, um, given just that it's expensive. Um, More private practices are going to focus just on diagnostics, hearing aids. Um, Those would be the easiest ones. Then looking at their website, though, a lot of websites I've found, they will say, we treat dizziness, but that, yeah, the air quotes, uh, it's not always the case. They'll say, oh, you have dizziness. Oh, okay. (laughs) I think that's probably about how far it goes. So your safest bet, I would say, is a university setting um, or an ENT practice.
2: Very good Actually, great tips today, Dr. Sellers. We appreciate having you on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I know we got something out of it. I'm sure our patient population got something out of it and our clinician listeners. So we'll probably have you back eventually. I feel like this conversation can just keep going. And since you're down the road from me, maybe we'll have it at cocktail (laughs) hours. Love that idea. Yes, we make
0: this a standing reservation, just not in our offices. (laughs) Right. Right. Perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really did enjoy this. Thank you. We appreciate you. And we'll include a lot of the stuff that we talked about,
1: like those links that you said, you're going to send us uh, for some of those resources for Tantis. We'll include them in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. And we look forward to it.
0: Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Good night, everyone. Good night. If you're interested
1: in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts.
2: Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.